Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody else. <laughs> Happy Sabbath. Do you love the Sabbath greeting? Isn't it like music to your ears when somebody says, Happy Sabbath? Isn't it beautiful? Do you like it? But, but when you say the same thing over and over and over again, sometimes you can forget what it means. You can go into intellectual neutral, right? Happy Sabbath. Oh, okay. What does that mean? So sometimes I like to change up my Sabbath greeting. I, I like to do a hermeneutical Sabbath greeting. So, so we can remember what it means. So, so here, here it is, and you're going to try it on one another. So you need to master this, okay? Happy salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone day. Now it's your turn to the person next to you, behind you, in front of you. Happy salvation <laughs> by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone day. Don't you like that? Do you like it? Some of you like it. Most of you don't like it. I tried this on an elder one Sabbath when I first formulated it. I, I had to, I had to give, it a, give it a go, right? So I walked into this church. I'd never been there before. I was going to be speaking at this particular church. And I walked in and in the foyer, and there was the head elder. I knew it was the head elder. He looked like the head elder. He had the head elder look. I thought, that's the head elder. So I said, Happy salvation by grace, alone through faith, alone in Christ, alone day. He didn't like it. He wasn't feeling it at all. He, he, said, he said, happy you better keep the commandments before Jesus comes day. So I, whoa. I said, happy if we love him, we will keep his commandments day. He said, happy the investigative judgment is underway and you better get your act together, boy, day. I said, happy I've read Daniel 7 and 8 and judgment is in favor of the saints of the Most High God day. <laughs> that was the end of it. <laughs> happy Sabbath, everybody. All right, so we're in a five-part series, and I want to emphasize that. I want to emphasize that because this is um, your chance to go to church three times in a row because all the messages are different. It's not the same message for these three services this morning. So if you want to hang around and you want to go to church three times in a row, doesn't that sound exciting? Going to church three times in a row, it's like binge watching but better. <laughs> three times in a row you can go to church if you want to. So hang around. If you need caloric intake, there's food somewhere. I saw it. So you can just get a little snack in between, come to church again and again. It's a five-part series. Right now, in this Heavenly Trio series, we're going to talk about the fact that God is love and how the love of God explains everything, literally everything. Now, we all know that this guy, Albert Einstein, uh, reached a zenith point in the scientific enterprise, in the scientific revolution, with his theory of relativity, uh, special re relativity, general relativity, 1905, 1915, two papers, a zenith point for the scientific revolution. Now, Albert Einstein, what a lot of people don't know, is he spent the last year, years of his life trying to formulate a theory of everything, a toe, a theory of everything. 
because the scientific enterprise had effectively taken everything apart conceptually and, and in, in an effort to understand what is the nature of reality at all levels. Things had to be dissected and pulled apart and looked at in their distinctive pieces. It was all torn apart for the sake of understanding, which, which, is, which is good. It was, it was helpful, taking it all apart. But then, then Einstein and others said, okay, we've taken it all apart, but, but how do we put it all back together? Again, conceptually, how do we understand the macro picture? We looked at the micro. What's going on with all of it as it works together? We need a theory of everything. And by the way, with hair like that, that brother was destined for doing something great. Would you agree? So a theory of everything. What, what is a theory of everything? Well, it's a way of understanding the underlying operating system of reality. How do all of the pieces fit together and work together to create this universe that we find ourselves living in? This is a theory of everything, or you could say it this way. What is the thing behind the thing behind the thing behind the thing behind all things that dictates the way all things operate together? What's under the hood of reality? What is the engine driving reality at the most foundational level? That's the question Einstein and others have been after in searching for a theory of everything. Now, Professor Millard Erickson came along sometime after Einstein, and he said, well, I want to throw another question on the table, and I'm going to, I'm going to throw this question on the table in the form of an either-or, a comparison of ideas. Erickson said, if reality is fundamentally physical, this is that realm of the scientific enterprise called physics, if reality is fundamentally physical, well, then we can deduce something from that. Then the primary, the primary force binding it together is electromagnetic. There's that, that binding it together. What's the theory of everything? We took it all apart. How do you pull it all back together? Again, conceptually. We didn't take the universe apart, except in our imaginations, and that's called science. And as we take it apart, how do you put it all back together? Well, if the, the, the thing behind the thing behind the thing is fundamentally physical, then all we're dealing with is physical laws. And the bottom, you know, following the turtles all the way down, the bottom of the whole thing is electromagnetic. Oh, but then Erickson drops a bomb on our minds. If, however reality is fundamentally social, then the most powerful constituating or constituting force is that which binds persons together, namely love. So what's really going on in the universe? Is it all purely physical? 
When I experience love for my wife, my daughter, my son, my son-in-law sometimes, when I experience love pulsating in my heart, is that just chemistry going on? Is that just biological? Is, is, this, is this an animal instinct that is pulsating deep inside of me? Am I, am I just experiencing self-preservation at a more sophisticated level than the chimps and the badgers and the hyenas? I think it's a worthy question. Richard Dawkins, evolutionary biologist, says, no, 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 it's all biology, it's all chemistry. Love is the most sophisticated form of selfishness, Dawkins says. It's just the evolutionary process at a more sophisticated level. Because if I can get you to believe or to think or to imagine that I actually love you, if I can get you to trust me, I then have the upper hand in the evolutionary, in the survival of the fittest. I'm going to triumph over you by leading you to believe that I love you there is no love in the universe. All there is is chemistry and biology. Erickson says, well, wait a minute. That would be true if we live in merely a physical universe, but what if there's a relational or a social dimension to reality? What if there's a moral dimension to reality? What if there is a spiritual plane that is intersecting with the physical plane. Then you might come to the conclusion that the theory of everything is love, not merely physical laws. And this is what I encountered when I was 18 years old from y'all, from Seventh-day Adventism. I was raised a secular atheist surfer party kid in Southern California. Didn't know anything about God, Jesus, or the Bible. I had never heard of the book of Genesis, and I was thoroughly familiar with the rock band Genesis. I'd never heard of the Ten Commandments. That's how secular my family was. And then when I was 18 years old, the Seventh-day Adventist church, it's a long story, basically ended up in a conversation with this teenage boy through a few of your, your pastors, your mouthpieces, your evangelists. And what you gave me, what the Seventh-day Adventist Church gave me, is what I have referred to since then as the master equation of reality. And the master equation of reality that you gave me when I was 18 years old has three components, love, freedom, and risk. That's what you gave me. That's the gift you gave to my intellect when I was 18 years old. You said to me that the foundation of all things is love, for God is love. And love, by its very nature, necessitates freedom in order to exist. And freedom, by its very nature, has risk. The upside potential, 
that we would choose to love in return the God who loves us, the downside potential that we would say no to love in favor of selfishness. And I understood everything in that simple equation when you, no, I didn't understand everything. I didn't, I didn't know that y'all were gonna try to get me to become a vegetarian. I didn't know that you were gonna tell me I couldn't watch TV anymore. I didn't know, I didn't know a lot of things. I didn't know anything about the Sabbath at that point. I was just an 18 year old kid. And the first, the first little bit of something that I was given was God is love, therefore freedom, therefore risk. And in that equation, I understood everything in a nutshell that then I could work out and deduce all other theology, doctrine, and everything else that is important from life from that master equation. Now, this master equation traces back to God himself. The biblical narrative opens with this profound line. In the beginning, God, ellipses, dot, dot, dot. Why the ellipses? Well, because what follows is, in the beginning, God created. But, but no, we should hang out with God for a minute before creation. The material universe was created, but prior to the material universe, all there was was God. In the beginning, just, just God. Now, that's beyond our comprehension. We don't know what we're talking about on multiple levels at this point. But we know enough from the biblical narrative to deduce something vitally important because in the Hebrew language, the word God here is Elohim, which strangely enough is a plural noun. What? Why? That would be like me introducing myself to you this morning. Pleased to meet you. I'm Ties. Plural. And you'd think, well, either English is his second language and he's confused, or we need to get him help because he thinks there's more than one of him. Those are your options. Because you would not take serious any individual human's plural introduction of themselves. I'm Thai, not Thais. I'm a single solitary self. There's not more than one of me. But I do have a plural name, because Ty met a girl named Sue, and we did that whole procreation thing, and we got three children, Amber, Jason, and Leah. And as a family unit, we're called the Gibsons, plural. There's a legitimate plurality to my identity because I am in vital union with others. I have a wife and three children, and we're the Gibsons. Now the plural use of the name Makes sense, it's logical, you, we can wrap our minds around it. Elohim is God's family name, in a sense. God is introduced to us in the biblical narrative in the first line of scripture, the Bible is literally saying, pleased to meet you, I'm some kind of plurality type of God, Elohim. Well, the biblical narrative unfolds and informs us that God is necessarily plural in some sense by virtue of the fact that God is love. Love by its very nature is social. It's other-centered, therefore there must be some other 
to love. To say God is love is to say the most profound thing that our lips can ever utter. To say God is love is to say that there is something fundamentally social about God. That God and God alone, prior to creation, is love. God is love, which is simply to say that God is a relational dynamic of some sort. Or you could say it this way, in the negative grammar, God is not a static, solitary self. God is Elohim, Genesis 1.1, and then this follows in the same narrative. A few verses later, Elohim is active doing something. Then God said, Elohim said, let us, note the language, make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, what you're seeing on the screen here is a conversation. Someone is speaking to someone. And whoever is doing the speaking is God. And whoever is doing the hearing is God. God is speaking to God. Let us make man in our image. God is not speaking to humans. They don't exist yet. They are the subject of the sentence. God is not speaking to angels because angels who do exist in the biblical chronology at this point, angels do not create something out of nothing. They only deal with pre-existing material that God created. Whoever is speaking to whomever share the power to create. Are you still with me? Okay. So then, God created man, that would be mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, count them up, one, two. He created them. Here's what we encounter in the opening narrative of Scripture. God is an us and an our. Let us make man in our image. God is an us and an our. Therefore, God's image is a them. Not a him, not a her, but the him and the her together as a them. God's image is the man and the woman in love with procreative capacity. This is amazing. This tells us who and what God is because we're witnessing God creating in God's image, which brings us back to the most profound sentence that human lips can utter. God is love. God is pure other-centeredness. Self-giving, other-centered motion. God is a relational dynamic and the most basic foundational thing that we can say about God is that God is love. But that love needs to be mediated to humans in discernible form, in understandable form. God is so completely other than us as created beings 
That the only way any of us will ever know God is for God to voluntarily, intentionally introduce himself to us in comprehensible forms. This is why we have language, metaphor, symbol, and narrative. Story and symbol are the mediums through which God communicates his love, his identity, his character, his essence. Love is the most fundamental thing we can say about God, and it needs to be mediated to us. How is it mediated to us? Well, it's mediated to us through nature. We learn something about God in the things of nature. As we said last night, you see a beautiful field of flowers, and you know that God is a lover of the beautiful. God is an artist at heart. Then you go to the higher orders of creation from inanimate to animate. The animals, have you ever held a puppy? Come on, God is somehow put together in such a way that the idea of puppies would occur to God and he would say, yeah, let's do that. Let's create beautiful animated creatures. And then the higher order, human beings, the man and the woman in love with procreative capacity to expand the family to a community and multiple communities to populate the earth with social union. And then the highest level of divine self-disclosure, the highest order of God's love mediated to the understanding of human beings is declared to us in the Gospel of Christ, chapter one of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word word here is logos, the Greek word logos, from which we get the concept of, of fundamental logic, the, the, the way things are. The word logos is something like the, the rational engine driving reality. Logos is something like, like to use a, a computer term, it's like the operating system of the entire created order that gives it its various expressions and applications, its various apps and its various programs, the operating system, preferably an Apple operating system, Lord, and not a PC one. But you get the point, the logos, the rationale of reality itself became flesh the scripture is about to tell us. But before God became flesh, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. So creation was made by this logos character. All the physical and moral and social and spiritual and emotional and relational laws of reality were made, engineered by Logos, by this word that we've encountered here. 
And then this, and the word, the logos, the logic of reality itself became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. What? It's a person. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. To this point in history, logos was the Greek idea of the operating system of reality, and it was depersonalized. It was just law, like the law of gravity, for example. But then the New Testament authors came along and they said, actually, the most fundamental level of the operating system is personal, not merely mathematical. That behind all the math is person, personhood itself. That logos became flesh <laughs> and dwelt among us and we saw something amazing. We saw his glory and it was the glory of the only begotten of the Father full of two things, grace and truth, held in perfect balance and tension, perfect equilibrium. Grace and truth. The glory of God in Christ, in the flesh, for us to see. The incarnation was God coming down in humility. It was God coming close to us in empathy. It was God coming as one of us in solidarity. The incarnation is the most remarkable thing that has ever occurred in all of universal history. That the one who made everything condescended to become part of his own creation. The late and great Hebrew scholar, Abraham Joshua Heschel, says it is a fact of profound significance that we sense more than we can say. I hope you're sensing that this morning. Like we're on the edges of things that are so profound that all of our attempts to talk about this come short of how truly magnificent God is. Heschel goes on and says, all statements about God are understatements. Come on, this is amazing to realize that as we reach with our intellects to comprehend God, there is another sense in which we will be reaching for all eternity into deeper, and as C.S. Lewis says, higher up and deeper in, higher up, deeper in, higher up, deeper in. That's the basic fundamental motion for created beings for all eternity. We have an awareness that is deeper than our concepts. So two things are happening here this morning. I'm saying words to you and you are consciously processing sentence structures to comprehend something. And yet on another level of your being, you're inarticulate. You're just like, oh, this is, this God is, is more amazing. I can't, I can conceptualize what I can't articulate. 
We possess insights that are not accessible to the power of expression. This is, by the way, why poetry and art is vitally necessary to any flourishing culture. Poetry and art communicates to us on a level that transcends vocabulary. Essentially, Heschel is telling us that we are in a crisis of vocabulary when we approach God, and yet we can't help ourselves. We have to, we have to take a stab at it. <laughs> we have to try to articulate the glory of God, the beauty of God, the character of God, the love of God. We have to try. So we have tried this morning. We have made an attempt at introducing ourselves to something amazing about God, and that is that God is love. This is the only total identity statement made about God in Scripture. This is the only place in Scripture where God is described with a single noun. All the others are verbs and adjectives. The Bible never says God is justice, only that God is just. Never that God is mercy, but that God is merciful. Never that God is gentleness, but that God is gentle. Never that God is holiness, but that God is holy. All verbs and adjectives to describe God, and there's one noun. God is love itself. When I say God is love, I have said everything there is to say about God. And then I can spend the rest of eternity expounding on it. But I haven't said anything new or other than or contrary to the fundamental reality. God is love, full stop, that's the idea. God is love, therefore God is just. Justice is a dimension of love. God is love, therefore God is merciful. Mercy is a dimension of love. And so on with every other attribute. God is love is the thing that we can say about God that is at the level of pure understanding without metaphor, symbol, narrative, or any kind of medium of understanding between. And that love was personified in Christ. Hands and feet and eyes and ears and a tongue to speak with and arms to hold little children with and eyes to look with compassion into a woman's eyes and say, I don't condemn you. hands to touch people that weren't supposed to be touched. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God's love was personified, embodied in Christ. When we look at Jesus, we are face to face with the profound and simple and beautiful reality that God is love. That's the whole idea. And that one idea explains every other idea worthy of our contemplation.
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your love. Please God, come close to us as we build into the next session and then the next and then the one this afternoon to build this, to build this picture of your character. We wanna know you as you are, God. Please help us to that end in Jesus' name, amen.